Sometimes global crises can reveal structural weaknesses and lead to long-term change. I want every American to be prepared for the hard days that lie ahead. But what exactly will be the implications of the coronavirus pandemic? It has been another extraordinary day. Stock markets opened in a state of high anxiety, which gave way to panic. Will this crisis transform our economy, our society, our democracy? Or will we return to normal almost as if nothing ever happened? And what about us as individuals? What effect will it have on the way we live, the way we work and interact? One thing I think coronavirus crisis has already proved is that there really is such a thing as society. I'm Matthew Taylor, the chief executive of the RSA here in London. My organisation has been at the forefront of social change for over 260 years. And over the coming weeks, I'll be speaking to scholars, business leaders, politicians, journalists and more and asking them one key question. How could and how should the pandemic change our world? Welcome to Bridges to the Future, Responses to COVID-19. So in a moment, we'll be talking to Professor Jeff Mulgan. He's at UCL, but he's an expert in how governments operate, in social policy, in public policy. He's got interesting things to say about why some governments seem to be handling this crisis better than others. But one of the many hardships of the pandemic is that I won't be able to do polarised for a few weeks, partly because we're doing this new series, Building Bridges to the Future, but also because we're finding it technically quite difficult to do three-way and four-way conversations. So I won't be in a studio with Ian for a few weeks, we social distancing, but I, I wanted to speak to him before we did this little pop-up series. And the first thing I want to ask you, Ian, is how the hell are you? Uh, I'm pretty well, actually. Thank you. And um, getting into the homeschooling vibe, I've got two young children, as you know, so uh, I'm doing, you know, a sort of very strict Michael Gove style knowledge rich curriculum for them interspersed with a quick run around the block. So Ian, we're going to, for the next few weeks, and let's hope it's just for a few weeks, we're going to be doing in the short interviews with people. And we're going to start with the same question for everybody. And I wanted you as my partner from Polarised and my future partner in Polarised again, to be the first one to answer the question. So the question is this, how could and how should the world change after the pandemic is over? Wow, it's not a small question, is it? So here's how it could go. It, it could mean that it leads to more international cooperation and more kind of social so solidarity with, within our societies. Right. So so we keep comparing this situation to a, a war, a world war, understandably. But of course, the good thing about this situation compared to a war is that we each other, we, we have a common enemy in this virus. And under threat, people tend to come together and, and feel more, you know, psychology has shown it again and again, and real life shows us again and again, just think back to the, 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 the blitz spirit. People tend to come together when they have a kind of common enemy. So my naive dreamer kind of version of the future is that the world starts to realise that we really have to 
come together as a global community if we're going to solve some of these big challenges. And if this virus forces us into that realisation, well, uh, at least that'll be a, a silver lining. And then just more of the kind of local level, I do think that a lot of social capital is being built. You know, my street has a has a WhatsApp group. We, we didn't have that before. Everyone's getting to know each other, albeit virtually. People who are you know, elderly or vulnerable in some way are being looked after. Not all of that is going to go away once the crisis is over. I think that some of that stuff is going, is going to last. The other way that it could go, certainly at the kind of global level, is that it actually just leads to more division, more kind of um, finger pointing and blaming, and in particular, of course, the relationship between the West and China. If the US and China get into blame game, you, you might see a much more confrontational relationship than even the one that we've seen with Donald Trump could end up with being more divisive rather than rather than bringing the world together. Uh, for anybody who wants to keep their spirits up in these difficult days, and if you're like me, you have your ups and downs, then do follow Ian on Twitter because he's a constant source of both insight and amusement. And of course, there's also uh, his regular a newsletter, which I think you advertise on your Twitter feed, Ian. So last tiny question. Remind me when your book's coming out, because I really, really hope we're back on air by the time that happens. Huh. Yeah, so my, my book, which is about how to disagree better, and Conflicted is coming out in September, September the 17th. We have a publication date now. So I'm um, just putting the final touches to it now. And in fact, just sort of adding a few words about the crisis that we're in, because... Uh, and I'm just sort of making the point, sometimes we say, uh, we need to put our differences aside if we're going to solve humanity's biggest problems. Um, to some extent, that's true. We need to realise that we are all on the same side when it comes to fighting pandemics or, or, or climate change. Um, but we also need to put our differences to work. We need to disagree with each other uh, uh, constructively and have a variety of different approaches. I hope it's even more relevant to the post-pandemic moment than it was before. So I'm delighted to be joined by Jeff Mulgan. So Jeff, you've changed job recently. What's your new job title? I've just in the last month or so become professor at University College London in collective intelligence, public policy and social innovation. Tell me, how is the coronavirus pandemic working out for you personally? Are you still well? How's your day-to-day -day life? Well, the weird thing is for the last few decades, I've had sort of managerial responsibilities. And now I don't have any at the point when many organizations are, of course, struggling hugely with the crisis. And I was just getting into working a lot from home, doing the gardening, spending more time with the kids. And of course, that has been been enforced. So obviously, there's the worries about elderly relatives and so on. But um, the honest truth is, this hasn't been such a terrible time at all for me. And I've quite enjoyed spending time with my vegetables and things like that. Good. Well, I hope you, you all stay healthy. So let me start with the question that we are asking everybody on this uh, building bridges to the future. How should and how could the world change after this pandemic? A lot of people have predicted fairly sweeping changes, the end of globalization, the end of capitalism, all sorts of things. I suspect that's pretty unlikely that any of those things will happen and we will bounce back at some point fairly quickly. But my hope is that this crisis is used, as many past crises and wars have been, to accelerate things which probably should have happened anyway, 
but become easier to do because of the, the pressure of crisis. And some of those are about how governments run, some of them about how societies run. Well, so let's start with the government uh, aspect of this. I mean, that's probably more than anything else what I associate you with is thinking about how government operates and how it can make policy better and implement it better. So let, before we get on to the kind of future, what's your kind of assessment of what we're learning about government effectiveness in this virus? We're seeing an extraordinary accelerated real-time sort of stress test of every government on the planet. We won't really know the patterns for quite a while, but so far it definitely looks as if some are doing much better than others. The governments of, of East Asia in particular, uh, Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, have looked much more agile in the speed with which they've ramped up testing, their use of data, their tracing of contacts, and seem to have got a, a grip on the numbers a lot more than uh, the countries in, in Europe, than Italy or the UK, let alone the US. And uh, the editor of The Lancet a few days ago uh, said that the US and UK were amongst the worst performers as governments. Again, that may be a little bit of a premature judgment, but I think this is the first time in history where we've seen a whole group of governments looking as if they're about a generation ahead of others. And I say it's the, the East Asian, very data-driven, uh, and not just the authoritarian countries like China, but also countries like Taiwan uh, acting in a very, very open, very transparent way, very honest about the difficulties and uncertainties and doubts, but using the full powers of 21st century technology to quickly spot everyone who's infected, everyone they've come across, and to act in a much more fine-grained and targeted way than has been possible in, in countries like France or the UK. You've done a lot of work with some of those governments. I know you've done a lot of work, for example, in South Korea. If I'd said to you six months before this virus had broken out, which governments do you think will handle it best? You probably would have would have got this right, wouldn't you? Well, I think that there's there's many reasons for that. One is these are countries which are generally very tech savvy. They have very strong digital industries and their governments have used technology for everything from uh, transport to employment to, to, to services, probably more than, than any other. They haven't also had the kind of hollowing out of government capacity, which we've seen in certainly the UK and other parts of Europe in the last 10 years since the financial uh, crisis. They were helped by having a dry run with the MERS and SARS crisis not that long ago. So they were already well-placed to respond quickly to, to epidemics uh, and so on. And I think they're probably a bit more at ease with, with data sharing and personal data. So many of the things being done around contact tracing a very sort of sensitive, you know, the idea that you can, that the government gets in touch with you and tells you, you need a test because you were in a taxi with this other person three days ago who's turned out to have coronavirus. That's not the sort of thing which probably the Western countries feel all that comfortable with. And yet it has hugely helped them get a grip on the crisis. In Singapore, I think nearly half of all the tests were initiated by the government getting in touch with someone they thought might be infected rather than people themselves showing up and asking for a test. My assumption about change in, in these circumstances is broadly this, that change is most likely where there is a, a kind of underlying cause for the change. There was something there already, a reason already to change, a political groundswell for change. Then the crisis accelerates that, it draws greater attention to it. And then third, the critical third part, 
is that there's then a kind of political coalition and a kind of policy capacity to take that momentum for change and actually embed it. So what I'm hearing from you about about government is that people like you had already been saying that there were countries and cities around the world that were using data more intelligently, engaging with their citizens more intelligently, being more strategic, more long-term, that the crisis is really going to bring into pretty stark relief the most functional governments and cities and contrast them with those that are less so. But then you get to the third part, which is the kind of political will, the policy capacity. So how confident are governments, at least, will learn the right lessons? So for a start, I think it is still quite early to draw any conclusions. So at first glance, a city like Seoul in Korea, where I, I work quite a lot, is doing incredibly well. They've had zero deaths so far from coronavirus, despite uh, a lot of cases, and they've used all sorts of new data and transparency tools to help them. But we don't yet know whether governments taking very different approaches, like Sweden, which still hasn't even done a basic lockdown, you know, maybe in six months' time, their rather sort of laissez-faire approach will, will look smart. For me, the really interesting question looking ahead, and it very much draws on what you were saying, is whether there will be the political will to apply some of the the, the methods of coronavirus to other other topics. So for, for quite a long time, I've been interested in this metaphor of thinking of government as a brain, a bit like a human brain. Just imagine if it really could see, interpret, analyze, predict, invent in the way that the best human brain does. And what's been really interesting in the last few weeks is these governments like Taiwan and Korea and Singapore and also Israel and others have have rapidly put together exactly that combination of things. So that's to say, very detailed observation of infections and contacts, predictive algorithms to see how the pandemic might spread, um, a lot of experiment and testing and creativity and a lot of sort of very transparent judgment about the complexities. They've pulled that kind of collective brain together as never before, uh, and often drawing on citizen input uh, as well. Now, what then becomes interesting is whether one might apply those methods to much slower burn crises like climate change. So coronavirus is rapid, deadly, visible. It's hyper-political in that sense that you can't be legitimate as a government if you're not dealing with it quickly. Climate change is the exact opposite. It is slow, invisible. Uh, There isn't the same immediate pressure for change. But to get to a zero-carbon economy and society, you probably need very similar things, much better observation of emissions from every building, every car, every neighborhood. You need exactly the same combination of citizen data and scientific data and evidence. You need lots of experiments in how do you change people's transport patterns, their food waste patterns, all these sort of things. And my my hope is we will apply some of these solutions which have been put together in incredible, under incredible pressure and with great speed, but we'll then apply them to other big challenges where there hasn't been the same drive and momentum, and therefore our sort of systems are very backward. When around climate change, we have almost none of what I'd call the data and knowledge infrastructures we need to get to uh, a zero-carbon economy. My hope is this might accelerate uh, the movement in the right direction. So some people listening, Jeff, might think, this sounds a bit like Dominic Cummings, this this kind of emphasis on expertise and data. And you, you wrote a very long and interesting blog about 
about Dominic Cummings' kind of job advert for, for weirdos who want to join with him in the cabinet office. So I'm interested in terms of, of the incumbent in number 10 uh, and these kinds of ideas, does that give you more hope that, of, of a possibility of a kind of rapid transformation in the effectiveness of the British state? I was less immediately hostile than many people to the proposal that, yes, central government should be using modelers, should be using data, should be encouraging people with different mindsets. That seems to me perfectly sensible. And, and Dominic Cummings said all of those things. What's still not really clear, though, is whether this government, the Johnson government, does actually have any uh, any governing philosophy or ideas on how to do things better. And at times, it slightly sounded like what I, I call the clever chaps theory of government, that if only you get a bunch of bright guys, and they usually are guys in number 10, they'll solve every problem. Whereas to me, one of the really interesting things happening around coronavirus, which again is a kind of model for so many other topics, is the countries which are doing this well are operating in a much more open networked way. They're not just relying on a single model, which is held you know, in the heart of government and does its predictions. They're using multiple different models of how the epidemic might spread, how the economy might be affected, and allowing them to be interrogated and questioned very openly. They're drawing on citizen-generated ideas about how to solve problems, how to better care for the elderly, how to you know, come up with vet new ventilators and uh, accelerate the supply of masks. They're seeing this much more as an open collective process. Now, if the Johnson government was to actually turn that into a governing philosophy and take to the next stage what Boris Johnson said the other day, that there is such a thing as society, then they really could be able to achieve a lot. But we've, we've in fact, seen very little of what the actual ideas are for changing Whitehall. So I think the jury is still out about whether this is all a bit of hot air or that there is a real program there. But as a government with extraordinary popular support at the moment, the public want to believe their government is competent, is able to solve this crisis with a big majority for the next five years. If ever there was a moment to actually bring our governing system into the, the third decade of the 21st century, it would be now. But I'm just not sure whether anyone right in the heart of the system actually knows what to do, to put it bluntly. And what about society, Jeff? Because in a sense, politicians can only go as fast as society would allow them to go. Do you sense that this virus is leading to a shift in the public would be willing to? I mean, you've talked about, for example, the public and career being willing to put up with a level of surveillance, which probably British citizens and various political groups would have been deeply resistant to. So do you expect social shift? I, I guess the comparison here to an extent is with the AIDS pandemic and how the response of the gay community to that led to a transformation in attitudes towards the gay and lesbian community. So there's two shifts which I, I hope will happen, and the jury is still out on both of these. So the first is that this is accelerating a, a discussion which has been underway for 10, 20 years, but didn't really come to fruition. And this is the idea that in an aging society, there's bound to be many more isolated people, people living with multiple conditions, needing all sorts of kind of help and care. And that we're very lucky to live in the era of social media and social networks, which in principle makes it much easier to organize around really every older person or person with a disability as a circle of support, a circle which may include their doctor, um, 
social workers, but also uh, friends, family, neighbours, all coordinating their support. Who's going to you know, buy them food, make sure they're not lonely. It's proven really hard to get those solutions to work, though, because it wasn't quite clear who would pay for them, how they would fit into the system. And so these sort of things haven't really progressed much in the last 10 or 20 years. But because of coronavirus, they're suddenly spreading like wildfire because they're exactly what is needed. And almost every neighborhood is creating exactly these kinds of circles of support and their implicit message, which is that actually everyone needs to share some responsibility for your neighbor, not just your elderly parent or uncle or aunt, but the person three doors down who may have no one else to keep an eye out for them. The fact that three quarters of a million people have now volunteered uh, for the NHS using, I'm glad to say, that the Good Sam app, which uh, we helped develop at, at Nesta, shows there's an enormous appetite to give something back, to be part of the solution. What's really striking, though, with government here and in many other countries is they don't really know how to cope with all of that, that generosity. They don't have the systems, the people, the roles to actually share the job of governance with, with society. So one hope I have is that this crisis will accelerate those things. We really will realise a rather long-standing dream of, of, of governance uh, and social policy is something which is done jointly between government and the people, acting with, not just to and for. And then the other big shift, as you say, I think will be around data. We've seen enormous value in this crisis from being able to link together often quite sensitive data about who was with who, who traveled where, who had what kind of contacts. And quite rightly, people will be very nervous of how that data could be abused by uh, an authoritarian, oppressive, untrustworthy government. So I think we will see an invention of new governance mechanisms, and I, I've done some work on this in the past, new kinds of data trust, which can be given the job of making sure we can link different kinds of data, but can also ensure that that isn't abused, whether by governments or big companies. At the moment, we almost completely lack the institutions to play that role, but we'll have to invent them if we're going to make the most of the linking of data so vital to pandemics, but also probably vital to changing behaviour around things like climate change as well. Let me open up another possible area that obviously people have speculated about, which is possibly one of the less positive things I've heard about these kind of networks that have sprung up and WhatsApp groups and all of that is somebody I spoke to the other day who said, well, I'm on a WhatsApp group and my role, the middle class part of London. There's hundreds of people offering help. There's nobody asking for it. And that's because our networks, the networks of middle class privileged people and working class people, people on the edges are so separated. We're so socially segregated. Now, obviously, in a crisis like this, we, we share a common humanity because the prime minister can get the virus as can all of us. And also, we are feeling an enormous outpouring of empathy for not just doctors and nurses, who are kind of, in a sense, traditional heroes, but for social care assistants and people who work in supermarkets and people who work in warehouses and even people who deliver us pizzas. People are thanking each other all the time for jobs which are traditionally being seen as low status. Do you think it's pie in the sky to believe that we might come out of this crisis with a stronger commitment to social justice? And, and is that commitment to social justice a necessary part of achieving other things that you've talked about in terms of modernising government and a, and a kind of model of public service, which is more kind of about co-production and collaboration? 
Yeah, I think this is a, this is a really important question. Uh, you could say for the last 20, 30 years, we've seen a, a, a steady kind of social polarization, less mixing between the relatively rich and the relatively poor. That's partly the nature of how um, neighborhoods are organized. It's partly exacerbated by social media, where people just talk to uh, other people uh, like themselves. It's partly influenced by uh, the legacy of, of widening uh, inequality. And the hope is that this reverses that. So if three quarters of a million people are volunteering in the NHS, there'll be a huge amount of social mixing of people getting to know the person who lives half a mile away from them, but they'd never never met before. Um, I think we're seeing a, perhaps a return to the role of uh, institutions like the BBC as a, as a great social mixer. My hope is that in turn will lead to positive, positive effects, because I think it's incredibly unhealthy for a society where there isn't that everyday social interaction. As we draw to a close, Jeff, this has been a very positive conversation about the potential for governments to get smarter and more effective for models of kind of public service, which are both also cleverer, but also more about combining individual, collective, community, and the assets of the state, about a possibility of a more kind of solidaristic mood, which makes new things possible. But I wonder, if we had this conversation in 2008, in the wake of the global financial crisis, we might have had all sorts of interesting speculations about how that might create the possibility for progressive change. And as we know, overall, quite the reverse happened. So what do you think is the greatest danger we face in terms of this virus not leading to the better world we've been talking about, but to greater conflict, greater division? So I think that there's lots of dark possibilities out there. And in particular, because of the, the strength of uh, authoritarian populist politics. So one very obvious risk, which we've seen in Hungary, is governments using the crisis to justify all sorts of restraints on opposition, free speech, and so on. I think the other risk, which we've seen in the last few days is the classic populist playbook, as if you're screwing up something, find someone to blame. And probably blame will be allocated to the Chinese, and this will be used by nationalist politicians to ratchet up anger and hatred uh, against the other. So that there are many, many, I think, fairly predictable negative ways in which this could pan out. I guess one of the reasons why I've, I've become so interested in this question of social imagination, which may seem a little bit long-term and a little bit detached from the crisis, is a feeling that one of the reasons why 2007-8 didn't lead to more progressive shifts was that in some ways the work hadn't been done on thinking through at a large enough scale what the alternatives could be, what a, a better way of running a democracy or a health system or neighbourhoods would look like. And for various reasons, I think this our capacity to imagine socially, to have plausible, desirable pictures of what our society could look like in a generation or two's time, I think this is atrophied. We much, find it much easier to imagine apocalypse, things getting worse, or we can just imagine purely technological futures, but we find it harder to imagine 
the social possibilities. And if that kind of underlying imaginative work isn't done, then it's very hard to turn a crisis into a more progressive direction. And so although this may seem, yes, slightly slightly indulgent as Rome burns, as it were, to be thinking 20, 30 years uh, into the future to what might be happening to childcare or elder care and so on, in some ways this is exactly the moment where that has to be done. And the only reason the Second World War led to such important progressive advances just after it was because so much intensive work had been done in the 30s and early 40s to do the serious thinking about how to rebuild society once the war was over. I almost hesitate for asking this question. Am I going to ask everybody, and you, you really could answer it throughout the programme, I'm still going to ask it of you, which is if there was one single thing more than anything else that you hope will change, what would it be? Well, I, ho- I hope it is that. And in in my neighbourhood, which is a pretty socially mixed one, uh, seeing all the rainbows going up in, in the windows in the last You're couple of You're in Luton, days. is that right? In Luton, yeah. It's been, yeah. you know, it's, it's a, a lovely, very small expression of hope uh, and of solidarity. And it is, you know, in many ways, we've all become very individualised, very separated in our lives or our concerns. And it's a real paradox, this moment when everyone's being isolated, in some ways has the potential to be a great reconnector, a rebuilder of yeah, of society in its most basic sense. That at least is my hope. What a great thought to end on. Jeff, anyone who's listened to this will have been fascinated by your ideas. If you, if they wanted to go to one place to read more of the thoughts of Jeff Mulgan, what book, what uh, website, where would you where would you suggest they find out more? Well, I've got a website called imaginativelyjeffmulgan.com and there's a blog on there about what governments are doing around the world on coronavirus. And I'll be updating that over the coming weeks and months as, as I see new interesting things being done, which we can learn from. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.